0: Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're kicking off a special two-part edition of the show, in which we look ahead in this week's programme to what 2024 holds in store, and next week, when we expand our horizons and consider the themes that might define the next decade. As ever, we have a top crew of guests drawn from all around UBS to set the scene for us across the macro picture, managing liquidity, profiting from disruptive forces, things to watch in the FX and commodity space, thinking about alts and how best to hedge risk too. So settle in and enjoy both some short and longer term scanning of the horizon by some of the very best in the business. We begin this week's 2024 Focus Edition with our regular guest, UBS Chief Economist Paul Donovan. Welcome back, Paul. Let me get your sense then of the big macro picture. What are some of the themes we should be thinking about? I guess looking back over 23, the I word, inflation, that would be quite front and centre. But tell us where you think we should start, Paul.
1: Well, I think the story for 2024 is about a slowdown in economic growth. And it's something that we are characterising as a soft economic landing or softish economic landing. What does that mean? That means we're going below trend. Growth is going to be slower than average over the course of next year. But we don't think we're going to be tipping over into a recession. And so that slowdown of growth is going to be a very important starting point For any consideration investors have about 2024 that sets the tone for the inflation story it sets the tone for the central bank policy story but a softish economic landing that's the focus
0: well let's dig in in a bit more detail and one of the things we often talk about Paul is central banks across different geographies and what their decision making or their thought processes might tell us about that bigger picture what's the kind of key narrative shaping the central bank picture as you see it
1: Well, it is going to be, I think, the combination of below-trend growth, the soft landing, and falling inflation rates. So inflation has already come down quite a long way, what economists would call disinflation. Prices are still rising, but they're not rising nearly as much as they were. That disinflation process is going to continue as we go through next year. And here's the thing. I don't think central banks want to keep tightening monetary policy as we start to see inflation really coming back down to perfectly normal levels. And so what I'm expecting is that the major central banks are going to cut interest rates to match the decline in inflation that we get over the course of 2024. So if inflation falls by a quarter of 1% in the first quarter, for the sake of argument... Central banks then cut interest rates by a quarter of 1% in the second quarter. So they lag behind a bit, but they will cut as inflation comes down.
0: Paul, what about supply and demand? I know this is something that we've spoken about a little bit before, because there's always a lot of noise made in the media in particular about consumer sort of sentiment in this space. But are there other kind of data points or metrics that we should focus on instead or as well in order to better understand the supply and demand picture?
1: Well, sentiment data is really very, very unreliable these days. I think a lot of economists have rather abandoned sentiment. It's very politically polarised, and of course we've got a lot of politics going on next year. That adds an awful lot of noise. People don't answer sentiment surveys, and if they do, they give quite misleading answers. So when we're looking at, at what's going on with supply and demand, on the supply side, you know, I think for goods... We're seeing pretty strong supply still. And demand for goods has been weakening. This shift from spending on goods to spending on having fun, which has been quite a big feature of the last 18 months, that's continuing as we look into 2024. So, you know, if you are Taylor Swift trying to sell concert tickets, you're not going to have a problem, I don't think. I'm not a particular Swifty myself, but, you know, I think it's going to be fine. If you're trying to sell goods, durable goods, electronics, televisions, washing machines, that kind of thing, you're probably going to have to bring down prices to persuade people to go out and buy. So on the supply side, supply of goods is very strong. On the demand side, this adjustment in demand trends means that we get some sort of differences between the different sectors of the economy. Having fun, I think, is still going to be the priority in 2024. Paul Donovan. Well, next up, it's the turn of Kieran
0: Ganesh, your managing director and global head of investment communications in the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO. Always a delight to have you join us on the programme, Kieran, to train a lens on the future. Let's start with the the year ahead in broad terms. Give us a bit of the overview as you see it. What, What are going to be some of the defining themes, moments, which people need to be aware of as they look ahead at the next 12 months? Yeah, so I think the first
2: thing people are going to have to think about is what's happening with economic growth. And there we we think that the economy globally is likely to be slower uh, in 2024 relative to 2023. And what we had seen is surprising resilience from the U.S. economy uh, last year as consumers were drawing down their savings and we think that at this point, those savings are largely exhausted and the experience of higher inflation and higher interest rates continuing to feed into the economy will mean slower global economic growth. The good news from that is that inflation should also be lower. The slowdown in the economy is helpful to try and reduce inflation. And we think that that will also mean that central banks will be cutting interest rates in 2024. So that's another key theme to look out for the end of interest rate hikes and the start of interest rate um, cuts. Another theme to watch out for will be politics. It is going to be a year of the US presidential election, but also uh, elections, of course, in the UK, Taiwan and India as well. So a number of important uh, elections are taking place next year. And that will mean that politics will remain at the forefront of investors' minds, not least because of the ongoing wars in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East as well. So a year of slowing economic growth, but lower inflation and lower interest rates uh, and politics remaining in the forefront as well.
0: Yeah, super interesting. And if we look at, you know, we often talk about these sort of three L's principles that inform good investing practice. One of them stands for, for liquidity. If we talk about managing liquidity, Kieran, in the next 12 months, what are some of the key notions, thoughts to keep in mind if we're looking at the liquidity picture?
2: Yeah, so the, the last year or two has been relatively easy to earn investment returns because, of course, investors have been able to just sit in cash and earn quite attractive rates of return. But with interest rates likely to come down in 2024 and potentially quite sharply, the market, as I record this, is pricing in six interest rate cuts from the Fed. That will mean that investors do need to think a bit more actively about what they do with their cash balances. So we're speaking with a lot of our clients about how they can think about limiting cash balances overall, but also locking in yields today, uh, because as interest rates fall, some of the available returns on fixed rate deposits and on shorter term bonds will also fall. So we think now is a good time for investors to think about how to lock in currently relatively attractive interest rates, rather than just waiting and seeing those uh, rates of return on cash fall.
0: Absolutely. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, Kieran, was this idea of buying quality. And look, this is something you've spoken to us before about on the programme, of course. Uh, Remind us why this matters and why the time potentially is right in 2024 for smart investors to to think in those terms.
2: So, quality is a theme that we think makes sense across both bonds and equities. So, if we start with bonds first, If we think we're entering an environment of slower economic growth, and a lot of companies are gonna have to think about how to refinance in a higher interest rate environment, that's gonna put pressure on the refinancing abilities of some of the weaker companies. So we think that in the fixed income space, It's going to be better to be in quality bonds where you've got companies with stronger balance sheets and better ability to refinance rather than in uh, some of the high yielding credit and where there may be more challenges. And then if you look in the uh, equity space, historically, we found that quality companies, again, strong balance sheets, a track record of delivering uh, earnings. They tend to perform better during periods of slowing economic growth or, or even in recession. And we do think we're entering that period of slower economic growth. So quality companies do tend to be better with inequities in times like these. In terms of where to find some of those quality companies, and we like the technology sector in the United States. Um, it has performed very well in 2023, but you know, when you think about companies with strong balance sheets, pricing power, ability to deliver consistent earnings, and somewhat less exposed to the economic cycle, then you can find a lot of those companies in the US technology sector, which is one of our preferred areas for 2024.
0: If we look ahead at next year, we have things like general elections, potentially on both sides of the pond, but definitely in the US come November. And another thing we've often spoken about is unforeseen volatility, particularly of a political character. I guess that's always worth bearing in mind, isn't it? If we're looking at the year ahead, it's in a sense, you, you never kind of know what's around the next corner. And it's certainly always hard to price in political volatility to the picture, isn't it?
2: Yeah so markets really struggle to price in political volatility because it's often quite binary in nature and can be surprising um, you know we've seen of course the outbreak of the Russia Ukraine war and the Israel Hamas war you know both had effects on on markets you know when it, when it comes to the election uh, the US election is the most important in the world from an economic um, perspective Uh, We don't yet know who the candidates will be on both sides and that will become clearer uh, in the first half of of next year. Um, But it does seem likely that we're going to have you know, parties which are relatively polarised running on different policy platforms with potentially different policy agendas. Uh, And of course, the makeup of Congress relative to the presidency, you know, that makes a big difference in terms of what legislation is able to get passed. So, you know, a lot to consider. And especially at a time when investors have been getting concerned about the US deficit, then looking at uh, the US political picture next year will be really important for
0: financial markets. Kieran Ganesh, Time to turn next on this week's show to Dominic Schneider. Dominic looks after commodities and FX recommendations in UBS as a global head. Dominic, thanks so much for joining us to look ahead into 2024. Let's talk a little about the currencies picture first. What do the expectations say? I guess the the US dollar... Should What, stabilising around current levels? But I know that the picture maybe is a bit more complicated than that, and there might be some weaknesses that might emerge a bit later. Give us the overview when it comes to the dollar, to the, the old greenback, first of all.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think in the short term, we still think there's room for the dollar maybe to claw back some of the weakness we have seen towards the end of uh, 2023. You look at rate cut expectation pretty uh, on the aggressive side, and I'm not sure if the Fed really wanted that kind of um, acceleration in rate cut expectation. So as communication tried to bring that back, I think dollar should be on the firmer side. You should also think about that when you look at growth outside the US, it still looks pretty weak in Europe, okay, we can argue that it's not going to fall further. And also China needs plenty of stimulus in order just to grow at current levels. So as long as the US still looks better shaping growth, and we have that pullback in rate cut expectation, dollars should, for example, uh, trade on the firmer side I could look at the DXY heading towards 104. But I think as we then move more towards the end, second half of next year, I think people will start to realize that Growth in the U.S. probably will slow. There is need to really cut rates, and I think that kind of environment should then give the dollar a little bit, um, take support away, and then you should see the dollar on the on the softer footing. It's not massively weaker. So, for example, your dollar we're looking at 112, but in overall, I think people will start to look for alternative as the yield advantage in the U.S. starts to fade. So, I would say a little bit of a two-tier market or uh, two separate. Uh, backdrops in 2024. Yeah, and
0: just to pick up on something, you mentioned sort of lacklustre growth in some other geographies. And it's funny, I guess we can sort of surmise that gains that are likely to follow from, I don't know, well, the British pound, I'm sat here in London, the Swiss franc, the euro, of course, those gains may be likely to be limited. Just what, because that growth picture is a bit more,
3: a little more lacklustre compared to the US? Yeah, I think that's a key factor. I mean, in the case of, for example, UK, I think, The Bank of England came out quite on the hawkish side. And if I look at what inflation did just recently, as inflation comes down, there's also room, I would say, uh, in the case of the Bank of England, then to cut rates. And so I think as that pivot comes in from the Bank of England, also the ECB, I think that should uh, take support away. We should not forget, I mean, in the US, uh, activity was really doing extremely well. Yep, we're going to decelerate, but we just probably going to be shy somewhere below trend. So we we'll look at 1.5 to 2% um, growth in in, uh, in the US in the first quarter. And if I look at what's the growth trajectory, let's say in the UK, for example, then really we do not have much growth uh, to look at, just close to the zero line, the same also for for Europe. And I think that is something that is a headwind for both currencies to play out.
0: Let's maybe just uh, dip into a couple of other uh, geographies as well because it's interesting to get that picture, Dominic. Aussie dollar, I know that's a preferred currency. Maybe you could sort of explain why on that front. And uh, Bank of Japan as well, if we look to the to the yen, I guess what the bank the BOJ it is still tightening monetary policy. Does that give the yen? I don't know. Does that change the picture when it comes to the yen?
3: Well, let, let's start with the Aussie first because it's truly our most preferred currency. In The rationale is pretty simple. I think, first of all, growth is going to be, say, quite robust. So next year, probably somewhere around 1.5%. And if you look at uh, all the other countries basically running big fiscal deficit, Australia, probably going to have largely a balanced, um, a balanced fiscal position. So you have the ability to stimulate. You have a lot of migration. And if you, I look where commodity prices stay for, Example. Then clearly, the currency should trade at the higher level. Also, the market completely ignoring that we have a situation where the external current account side is actually in a firm surplus. So I think all these factors then leads us to a point where we think the RBA is not going to cut rates next year in the first half. It's probably more towards the end of 2024, and that really distinguishes the RBA versus other central banks. And I think the market will see that as a a currency positive. So wouldn't be. to see the currency marching higher 5% across the board. Now, as for for Japan, I think what is interesting is that the BOJ will take its time. So looking for a removal, for example, of negative rates um, already in the first quarter probably is going to be premature. Uh, So in that context, that's probably more going to come a little bit later on. The BOJ wants to give the financial system a lot of time, wants to be certain that the inflation pressures are there to last. I think in that context, they're going to look at wage negotiations then in spring of next year. So they really take a very slow pace at, at this point in time. What does it mean from current level? Probably not much gain for the yen at this point in time. More are thinking about dollar yen heading towards 145. So at this point, I would say a range by market with yield differential still not speaking for the currency. Dominic, while well, while we have you, let's also have a quick thought from you
0: about the the commodities outlook. I guess the the potential maybe for commodity price gains limited, given that we've already mentioned somewhat subdued GDP growth. Uh, certainly in China, it's around zero. In Europe, it's coming down. In the
3: US, is that the kind of the the, the key thing to bear in mind? Definitely, you have a top-down headwind, and the macro part is something you mentioned. But I think there are sufficient, I would say, bottom-up factors, which we do need to take into consideration. So, and I think in that case, we need to think about more on a sectorial perspective. So, I'll give you an example. While maybe we're concerned about oil demand, I still think next year we're going to grow oil demand probably about 1.4 million barrels per day. That's a quite robust numbers. Chinese tourists will want to go travel globally and keep in mind while while weakness and activity is mainly related to the developed world i would also say that the demand for for crude is all about emerging market and countries like india is doing well so i think we do have structural factors in place to keep the story up and i think opic plus is really keen to make sure this market is balanced too tight so So looking at 90 bucks, for example, thinking about the more cyclical metals. So if you think about here, yes, I agree with you, industrial production is down, but guess what? For example, Chinese copper demand was quite strong. Why? Well, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of focus on on energy transition and what it means and so i think there are all structural elements in place that i would say give some of the metals an interesting allure to investors and last but not least and i leave out here a little bit more the agriculture with rates coming down i would still think that, that gold for example trades on the higher side so i think we do have various factors in place that if you just look at the top down at a glance, you might say, hmm, not an attractive place to be. But if you look a little bit deeper, there's still probably upside on a broad index basis around 10% thereabout. And then you get the cash collateral performance of 5% a little bit of the role gains. And so quickly, some you have some return outlook in the, in the mid teens. And I think that's worth the risk. Dominic Schneider.
0: Well, time now for some fresh perspectives from Tony Petrov, senior strategist for UBS Global Wealth Management, covering alternatives and specializing in hedge funds. Great to have you with us, Tony. Tony, before we start looking ahead to 24, maybe start by giving us some of your learnings in this space from the year that's just wrapping up. What are some of the key takeaways
4: from 2023? Thanks for having me, Tom. As we approach the end of this year, I think 2023 was a historic year for markets. Bond yields reached the highest level in more than 15 years. We had the first trillion dollar artificial intelligence company. But to me, the highlight of this year was the resilience of the US economy. Despite major rate rises, it beat expectations, while the immaculate disinflation hypothesis was self-validated. 2024 is shaping to be a positive year for investors. We expect positive returns across a range of asset classes. In our view, the next year should bring a soft lending for the US economy and lower rates. But economic uncertainty and geopolitical instability are still present and cannot be neglected. Most of the time, uncertainty usually translates in volatility. And given that there is no single hedge that protects against all risk scenarios, we advise a diversified approach across assets and regions. In addition, investors can further insulate portfolios against specific risks by maintaining a defensive core with hedge fund strategies.
0: Well, yeah, let me just pick up on that, Tony, then. This this idea of def- you know, being more defensive in, in your strategizing is something we've talked about before. Tell us why that's so important and, and actually what that defensive strategy actually looks like. What are the mechanics of it?
4: Investors, I think, should be excited about three things, Tom. One is just The higher rates environment has created more dispersion in terms of the ability to pick bonds, credits, longs and shorts. And hedge funds are able to selectively see such opportunities while applying strict risk limits. Second, cash rates are attractive indeed. But we expect such high rates to be relatively short-lived as the central bank's tightening cycle ends. In the long run, excessive cash holdings can lead to missed investment opportunities and wealth erosion. This is clearly a hidden risk. Hedge funds can leverage higher rates while remaining actively invested in risk managed. This is largely because higher interest rates provide better opportunities to generate what we call alpha, increase risk premiums, and, and allow hedge funds to earn interest on unencumbered cash. And third, the primary challenge, in my view, for modern asset locations is managing shifts of the economic cycle and sentiment, especially now given the unstable correlation between equities and bonds, which by the way lately has been quite positive. Hedge funds have done well during past late phases of the cycle and can serve as a complement to traditional asset classes. Historically, hedge funds have outperformed both high-grade bonds and equities near the end of the cycle and during the recovery stage.
0: Well, yeah. And just before I bring Antoinette in to talk about some other interesting sort of alternative avenues, Tony, just expand a little on the opportunity set, because you've described a backdrop there that is still a little volatile. There's still unpredictability. But you also mentioned that there's a a risk of missing out on opportunities. So tell us a bit more about the, the opportunity set in this space.
4: I suppose I alluded a bit on the opportunity set, Tom. For instance, we like specialist credit managers that exploit differences between strong and weak companies. High global debt imbalances and the like effects of high rates may boost bond price and spread volatility, which in general is supportive of credit long-short managers, such as credit arbitrageurs. And allocations to these strategies should provide investors with attractive income, even if the general market falls, and potential for greater gains than losses thanks to the so-called convexity, not to mention about their lower sensitivity to interest rates and credit risk. We also see good strategic opportunity in the stress and special situation funds, given the upcoming refinancing pressures. Uh, Higher rates in the upcoming maturity wall put pressure on firms to repay loans, such that it's creating opportunities in in the distressed debt space. We think investors should two up and prepare themselves for more investment opportunities to come from areas of the, the market that have already seen some dislocations. Tony Petrov.
0: Finally, on this week's show, let's hear from Antoinette Seidrich, alternative investment strategist in the UBS CIO, where she covers private markets. A warm welcome back to the show, Antoinette. Great to have you with us once again. Tell us, what what is the opportunity in alternative credit, Antoinette, as you see it?
5: I think here what's important to look at is we have to look at, at the, also the relevance here of private debt and in funding within the economy, which over time has become a little bit more more strong, where private managers are playing a more and more important role to provide funding for, for companies across all stages in the life cycle. And with current high government debt levels, but also the current cost of capital, public funding for innovation has been quite constrained. And hence, we do think also that there are alternative sources of credit remain of importance. So if we look here at private credit and direct lending strategies, we we have seen this as quite an interesting source of income for the coming decade with debt to cash ratios have deteriorated somewhat and defaults are still uh, something that should be kept in mind, especially as here we should consider a lacked effect of the higher interest rates in the economy, but also these higher defaults and a potential losses, while they could put stress on existing loans, private lenders can generally dictate better terms on new loans as well and negotiate stronger lender protections, which includes also stricter covenants. And we've seen also lower leverage levels and uh, higher equity contributions currently on, on new deals. So if we're then looking at current levels, then private loans are yielding around 12% on an unlevered basis which is quite a bit of a pickup if you compare that to to high yield and leverage loans. And then if we would think of that from a recommendation perspective, we do think at the moment it's very important to focus on those managers that are quite experienced and are prudent at underwriting. Also here, what could remain of interest, and I think Tony has already hinted at that before, managers that do have the capabilities to, to work on turnarounds and, have experience in taking equity ownership as well, may have a bit of an edge in the current environment. So there may also indeed then be some opportunities ahead with the current maturity wall that Tony has hinted at as well, for distressed managers as well to to step in and turn those companies around that find themselves in more difficult situations, particularly when they uh, find themselves in stress on the balance sheet and unable to, to cover their, their current debt costs. So that would be my take right now on the alternative credit.
0: And that's Antoinette Seidwerk bringing us to the end of this edition of the Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle Radio. Do remember to tune in at the same time next week as we shift our gaze from the coming 12 months to those forces shaping the next 10 years. Don't miss that. In the meantime, of course, you can listen again and explore at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club and subscribe to Monocle magazine. You can also follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards.